It's drizzling outside. <clears throat> Just wanted to state the obvious so we're all aware. If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John, chapter 7, and if you're following in the Chairback Bible, it's on page 892 in the New Testament. John, chapter 7. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, it's our desire that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word, our minds to comprehend it and our hearts to love it. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to uh, just to even search within, that we would be open to your Holy Spirit searching within, that, Lord, we might continue to grow in our, not only our knowledge of you, but our understanding of who you are and our relationship and walking with you. And Lord, that you would grant us your joy this morning as we read your word and apply it to our lives. God, that you would give us joy in following you and learning this, learning this spiritual discernment that this passage calls us to. And so I pray, Father, that you would grant us your grace as we hear and listen and engage our hearts and minds. And Father, I ask this morning for your anointing as well as we as I proclaim your word that you would speak to your people, that, Lord, you would use these words that you have given me to proclaim and to share and to urge and encourage us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Spiritual discernment is probably a, a topic that we don't speak much about. Maybe it's a topic that we don't even think much about. But when we speak about spiritual discernment, I think it's critically important for us to, uh, to recognize that this is, a very, uh, this is a very significant discipline that every believer in Christ needs to develop. The discipline of spiritual discernment means hearing from God, hearing by the Holy Spirit, being led and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives as we seek to carry out and to live according to His will. And you know, sometimes this takes patience, doesn't it? <laughs> it takes patience to wait on the Lord sometimes. But that's exactly what spiritual discernment calls us to do. It calls us to wait on the Lord. In fact... Patience is not something that we generally enjoy. We've been trained in ways of impatience for so long that we, we really want things now. In fact, we want things yesterday. We live in a world of instant gratification. We have fast workout routines and fast food. We go from fast diets to fast technology. In all of this, we've grown accustomed to not waiting, or rather, we've grown unaccustomed to waiting. We're not a people who want to wait on many things. I was thinking about this on so many levels. In fact, uh, you know, microwave is a relatively new invention. Uh, and, you know, 30 years ago, to make bread in one minute was something that was just inconceivable. But uh, there's a recipe now where you can take 
these ingredients and put them in a cup and put it in the microwave. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you know this already, and I'm the only one that this was a surprise to. But you can put it in the microwave for one minute. I kid you not. And you pull it out, and you've got a muffin in a cup. I mean, you've got bread in one minute. That's amazing to me. We have figured out a way to get everything we want faster in in a split second. At, at the moment we want it, that's our desire. Well, in this passage this morning, I think what Jesus is doing is he's modeling for us exactly how we are to wait upon God. He's modeling, waiting upon God until that precise time, until that right moment. He's waiting on God's providential timing. He models for us dependability and submission to the Father. And I would say for us this morning, the need for us as true disciples of Christ is to learn to wait upon the Lord. We, as His children, must learn, as His disciples, need to perhaps relearn what it means to wait upon the Lord. In fact, growing in spiritual discernment calls for patience. It calls us to hear from God. And it's when we're at that place of exercising patience and and hearing from the Lord that we really are at a place of contentment in our life with Christ, that we experience those greatest moments of joy. No matter what circumstances are in life, we're, we're, we're filled with a sense of knowing that God's got this under control. That we're operating in His timing, on His timetable, and not according to ours. There's a great and tremendous sense of of relief when that's the place of the operation in our daily lives. Well, I want to challenge you to think about that as we walk through this text this morning in verses 1 through 13. If you found your place in John chapter 7, say amen. Follow along as I read. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Some translations say, where is that man? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. First thing we see in in this passage is, in verses 1 and then verses 11 through 13, we see that there's a threat on Jesus' life. Now, this is pretty simple, pretty straightforward as we read. We can, we can glean that from the context, but there's literally a threat on his life. We learn that in verse 1, that they were seeking to kill him. The Jews were seeking to kill him. 
Now, one thing we should note is that in, in John's gospel, the Jews is a common way of John referencing the religious leaders of Israel. If we look down in verses 11 through 13, it's confirmed for us by the context of the passage that these Jews are those religious leaders. So the Jews were seeking, verse 11, at the feast. Uh, they were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And then verse, uh, verse 12 tells us that there was much grumbling among the people. In verse 13, that no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And so there's this distinction, this contrast made between the crowds who were talking about him and those religious leaders who were wanting to find where he was. And so as we see this distinction between the crowds and their grumbling and muttering, uh, in disagreement about Jesus and, and the Jews, the, the religious leaders who were, who were seeking him out, we understand that Jesus was really controversial in nature. Jesus was one who said many things that aroused many discussions about him and caused people to quit following him. We saw that last week in John chapter 6 as we finished chapter 6. In fact, verse 12 records for us that the crowd, they were... They were asking a question. They were, they were wondering about Jesus and his identity. Was he the Messiah? The crowd was asking. Well, he are saying he, he's a good man. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, he's a deceiver. He leads people astray. There's much discussion about his identity and who he was. But the reference in verse 1 tells us a little bit more as well. The reference in verse 1 says that Jesus was walking in Galilee. And as he was walking in Galilee, he would, he would walk over the next six months. From That's the difference between chapter 6 and chapter 7, where we end the Passover feast and begin the Feast of Tabernacles here. There's about six months of walking in Galilee that's occurred. And we learn from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just what was going on during those six months. But... Jesus, as he was walking for those six months, he was walking through Galilee, really the length of Galilee, from, from the northwest corner of Galilee, from Tyre and Sidon, all the way down to the, to the southeast portion of Galilee, where the Decapolis was at. And, and he was engaging in ministry as he went about. He was engaging in ministry such as performing miracles and healing the sick and multiplying bread to feed the 4,000 MacArthur points out most of his time had been spent discipling the twelve. As he was taught, as he taught them extensively from Matthew 16 through Matthew 18, it was during this time that he revealed the imminence of his crucifixion and resurrection and brought the inner circle, that is Peter and James and John, up on the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw his glory. Now that was the interim time of between chapter 6 and chapter 7, but really as we as we kind of read between the lines, filling in the gaps from the other Gospels, we recognize that there's a reason John doesn't have these gaps filled in, that he, he just jumps straight to this next feast. And the reason is because John isn't as concerned with, with the, the, the daily activities, or he isn't concerned with giving us a precise historical record of Christ's daily ministry as he is in communicating the theological significance of Christ's mission to reconcile and to redeem man to God, to redeem the world. So the historians tell us that this Feast of Booths was a very popular feast. In fact, it was probably 
the most popular feast. People from all over came to Jerusalem for this specific feast. This was one of those three annual feasts where the men journeyed to Jerusalem. But at this one, they would construct, uh, they would construct and live in booths made from branches. And they would, they would camp out for, for seven days in these booths. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths. But this was central. It highlighted for them God's providential care. And it reminded them of His providential hand leading and caring for the nation of Israel for nearly 40 years during the time of the Exodus. So it was a jubilant celebration because it it followed the time of harvest. All the work in the fields had been done. Their, Their crops had been stored. They were going there to have a good time and to enjoy and to celebrate at this feast. But really, this feast marks a significant turn in the life and ministry of Christ. We see that he wasn't able to go to Judea because they wanted to kill him. And it really opens or it really highlights the kind of the open militant pursuit of Christ. As long as he was in Galilee, they couldn't touch him. But when he went into Judea, they would seek to arrest him. That's why verse 1 tells us that he was walking in Judea. Second thing I want us to see in this passage, beginning in verse 3, is we see the brothers' self-seeking request as they come to Jesus. We see their self-seeking request. The first question I have is, who were these brothers? Well, these were the half-brothers of Jesus. That's, these weren't spiritual brothers in the sense that brother might be used today uh, within, within some churches, but these were the half-brothers of Jesus. These were Mary and Joseph's sons. In fact, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 tells us their names. It was James and Joseph, Simon and Judas are Jude. I want to say from the beginning, I don't want to vilify the half-brothers of Christ unnecessarily this morning. Because after Jesus' resurrection, James, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And Jude most likely became, he was the one who, who, uh, who penned the New Testament epistle that bears his name, Jude. And so uh, once Christ had resurrected and he appeared to his followers, they they then believed and were following him. But at this point, we really see modeled from them a self-seeking service. I say self-seeking because in verses 3 through 5, it, their underlying motivation for challenging Jesus to go to the festival is really unearthed or revealed. So first, I, w- I want us to see that their disbelief was driving their motives. Disbelief drives their motives in verse 5 it says for not even his brothers were believing in him his brothers his half brothers those who had been raised with him they they weren't even believing in him might be difficult for us to conceive that jesus's half brothers who grew up with him in the home they didn't believe the things that he was saying i mean certainly they would have They would have seen his outstanding moral character and his integrity growing up. They would have known that he he spoke truthfully. They they would have known, right, that he he always did things that he was asked to do or maybe that that he was obedient to his parents. They would have had this growing up, right? We we would think that if some would believe it would be his siblings, his half-brothers. But they proposed the reason Jesus should go to Judea is to show those disciples who had recently left him that he really was the Messiah. 
by performing works and performing miracles. In verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 66, last week we saw, as a result of this, these hard sayings, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You know, we would, we would think that they had at least seen one of Jesus' miracles. Maybe the miracle of, 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 of multiplying the wine or uh, giving the wine to, to drink at the wedding feast. I mean, if Jesus was there and Mary, his mother, was there, certainly his brothers would have been there. Certainly they would have seen this miracle at Christ's hand. They had certainly heard of his miracles as many people had been talking about Jesus, their half-brother. You know, but they were still doubting. We still see that they were doubting. They still wanted to see greater works of Christ for themselves. Verse 4 continues to reveal their underlying doubt. It says, for no one does anything in secret. He goes on in verse 4. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, right? They're doubting that he is who he says he is. F.F. Bruce in his commentary says this, what the brothers did not realize was that those disciples' faith was imperfect precisely because it was based on the outward signs without proper appreciation of the inward truth they were intended to convey. In other words, a faith that's based on outward signs will not be strengthened by greater signs. And this is really the truth that Christ has been Sharing, he's been speaking and preaching. Faith must be birthed by the Spirit through the Word of Christ so that there's an inward transformation. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 as he encounters Nicodemus. He says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It requires a new birth, a being born again. In chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, Jesus really in addressing the disciples, speaks to the heart and the inward motivation of their heart. He says, now, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He himself knew what was in man. Their disbelief was directing and driving their motives. Because of their disbelief, they could not see and understand Christ's mission. In fact, their disbelief causes their misunderstanding of Christ's mission. In verses 3 and 4, we, we see this. Verse 3, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here, go into Judea, so that your disciples may also see the works which you're doing. Listen, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. They think this is what is driving Christ's works. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14 speaks this way, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. First we see that the brothers misunderstand Christ's mission, saying no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If we think back over chapter 6, we recognize that 
They thought the Messiah would embrace worldly fame by appealing to the masses. They wanted to take Jesus and make him king, right? They wanted to take him and force him to be king at the end of chapter 6. They thought the Messiah would be the political figure ushering in a revolution and bringing change and freedom for them. And the brothers also thought this would be the perfect time if he really wants to be the Messiah, to do his works for all the world to see, since this is the most popular festival of all, since this is when everyone will be gathered there. This is the opportune time. This is when he needs to strike. He needs to do these miracles now. But I want you to notice what, what the brothers are doing. It's the same thing really, that Satan did in the wilderness temptation. They were trying to shape Christ's mission with the temptations of worldly significance. In their unbelief, they resort to pragmatism and and worldly wisdom. It's the same thing that Satan did in in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, when Satan came to Christ. If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. In other words, there's no reason for you to suffer. You can make these stones Bread, and Jesus replied to him, quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, Man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Or continuing in, in Matthew chapter 4, The devil then took him up into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, if, right, if you're the Son of God, like the brothers saying, If you really do these things, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. He'll command his angels concerning you. Show yourself to the show that that you have control. Show that God is favoring you. Throw yourself off and let the angels come and rescue you. Then Satan, in verse 8, took him to a very high mountain, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you, right? Here it is, worldly fame, everything you could ever want. I'll give you all of it. If you just bow down and worship me. And so he says, go, Satan, away from me. It's really in the similar vein to what Mary did at the wedding feast of Cana when Jesus was there in John chapter 2. She comes to him and says, we're out of wine. And he says, woman, why do you concern me with this? It is not yet my time In other words, don't try to take the reins on God's mission and what he is trying to accomplish. Don't try to subvert God's mission. The same thing Peter did just before the transfiguration in Matthew 16, where Jesus had just candidly spoken and told them, I'm going to the cross, I will die. And then Peter pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. I won't let this happen, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And the point is that they were trying to subvert God's mission through Christ. They had misunderstood Christ's mission. All of these examples have the commonality or the common denominator that they ultimately try to subvert God's sovereign plan. But here's the thing. Christ, Jesus, he wouldn't disobey. He wouldn't follow another way. They misunderstood Christ's mission because they didn't believe. 
their hearts were hardened to the truth about their half-brother. They wouldn't yield to the better way, to Christ's way. Instead, they remained steadfast in their rebellion, and they refused to submit to the truth of God in their midst, Christ himself. So we see the brothers misunderstand, right? We, we see how they misunderstand. We get that. But I want to ask us a personal question. Do we, do we misunderstand Christ's mission today? As believers, do we understand or misunderstand Christ's mission through us, through the church today? I can think of many, but two of the most prevalent misunderstandings of the day regarding Christ's mission I think the first one it, is to recognize that it, it isn't to appeal to the masses by promising all the worldly benefits of an easy life. That's really what was happening, even in these examples that we looked at. You know, so often I hear on the radio or I, I see on TV a, a neatly packaged gospel that's geared around appealing to the masses. But, you know, the, the gospel invites people to experience the richness of God and invites us to understand that we ourselves are sinful people who are in need of a Savior, who are in need of redemption, and this is only found through Christ. So a gospel that invites people to experience the richness of God without repenting of sin and acknowledging their guilt and transgression against God, accompanied by the need of Christ the Savior, is really no gospel at all. It's the anti-gospel. It is against the gospel. The reason the gospel is a good news is because without Christ, we are hopelessly condemned under the wrath of God. We need Christ's sacrifice. We need the work that he has accomplished on the cross in order to live under the gospel and to live out the gospel. And the, the, the second misunderstanding today I think, looks and sees Christ's mission today as one where we get saved and then we simply have the security of heaven. But the rest of life doesn't matter. The rest of life is of no concern that we simply have the security of salvation. Therefore, we can go about living the rest of our life any way we want, not submitting or, or finding ourselves living in submission to Christ. But it involves, our salvation involves our daily submission to God. So we realize that we are in Christ and being the hands and feet of Christ, that we should recognize we are his mouthpieces. We are his ambassadors. We are his ambassadors to everyone, everywhere, all the time. To my wife, right? To my children, to my neighbors, to my coworkers, to my friends, my classmates, my bandmates, to my teammates, to everyone. We should see the call to walk with Christ as more than simple uh, than simply a, a one-time experience where we, we're saved and then we have security and we go about living any way that we want. When we understand Christ's mission today, which hasn't changed, we'll recognize 
our salvation is not about us. Instead, it's about bringing glory to God. And when we bring glory to God, uh, when bringing glory to God is our chief aim in life, then we'll have no problem submitting to Christ's mission in and through his people, through us. In fact, we'll zealously pursue Christ's mission. And Christ's mission is this, investing in disciples and seeing the lost converted to fellowship with him. Investing in people, investing in his children, seeing them grow, being part of sanctification, being part of growing in the knowledge and understanding of God, participating in ministry, and then taking this gospel message to a lost and dying world. So it involves in the believer's life first growing up and understanding and and pursuing this relationship with God where we are growing in Christ's likeness where we are engaging in, in living obediently to His Word and surrendering our life to Him. But then it also involves us taking this hope of the gospel that we have been given to a lost and dying world. And if we are going to, to participate in Christ's mission, we must understand that this is at the forefront of what He is calling us to do. Christ is calling us to submit to the Lord and to engage in following Him and to take the gospel message to a lost and dying world. So we see they misunderstand Christ's mission. Not only do we see evidence through the brothers, their self-seeking request, but we also see Christ's response. And Christ's response is, selfless and dependent. Christ gives a selfless and a dependent response in verse verses 6 through 10. And this selfless and dependent response from Christ is yet another example of his selfless love for humanity and his great dependence on the Father through submission. From Christ's response, we can learn how to truly trust in God's providential care and understand how the world responds to the kingdom of God because we see it laid out here in verses 6 through 10. First, I want to point out, though, the love slash hate of the world, right? We see it. Uh, we see it against Christ in, in verse 7. He tells his brothers, The world cannot hate you, But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. So he tells them then, go up to the feast yourselves. Jesus tells his brothers that the reason the world cannot hate them is precisely because they are part of the world. Later in John 15, 18 to 19, Jesus was teaching his disciples on this very topic. And in teaching them, he tells them, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. In other words, the world loves its own. And this is really the truth regarding all who follow Christ as true disciples. And it's magnified even today in the world's response to the moral issues within our culture. I mean, think about it. When, true, when, when Christians give voice to the vulnerable of our society and when, 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 believers, when believers address and confront the issues of immorality or unjustness, there's great backlash. 
issues such as abortion or euthanasia are some of the, the hot-button issues of the day where we see the ungodly wanting to silence the voice of Christ's disciples who call for the injustice of, of abortion to stop. Or when we, when we take on a moral issue such as homosexual marriage by upholding, simply upholding the definition of, of biblical marriage, then we're labeled as closed-minded or filled with hate speech. And so we see this reality at work, even as Christ is speaking with his brothers, don't we? I mean, they're wanting him to go up to the, this festival to be a part of the celebration, perhaps, or to show his work so that everyone would believe in him and see the manifestation of his miracles. But he knows man. And he knows for his brothers the reason the world doesn't hate them is because they share the same mindset as those of the world. You know, the distinct difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of the world is about advancing man's agenda. The kingdom of God is about advancing God's agenda. The kingdom of the world is all about self and fulfilling what self wants, but the kingdom of God is all about serving and serving according to what God wants and desires. You see, the kingdom of God is about advancing God's agenda, which is redemption and reconciliation of man to God. That is God's agenda in this world. So we see the love-hate of the world. But secondly, we see Jesus modeling what I think is a theology of God's providence. And this is perhaps the most important part of this message for us to get this morning. Where Jesus is modeling this knowledge, this understanding of God's providence and God's involvement in his ministry, his leading. And it really highlights for us the the requirement of spiritual discernment for true disciples. Jesus makes a distinction between he and his half-brothers in verse 6. When he said, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. So his point is, as part of the world, as part of the world's system, they aren't concerned with operating according to God's timeline. Instead, they are just concerned with operating according to their own time, whatever they feel like, whatever they want to do. D.A. Carson in his commentary says this of Jesus' half-brothers. It's almost as if... They're being excluded from divine sovereignty. Not that God suspended his providential reign in their case, but that what they did was utterly without significance as far as God is concerned. I thought that was an interesting quote to speak about their relation to God and how they were just doing whatever they wanted, whatever seemed right for them. Bruce, in his commentary, says, But for people who had no such awareness of living from moment to moment in sensitive rapport with God's directing will, one time was as good as another. Your time is always ready. But he whose will was regulated by the Father's will would not move until that will was shown, speaking of Christ, waiting on the Father's will to be revealed. And so he he says in verses 9 and 10, Verses 8, he tells him, go up, 
Go up to the feast yourselves. I don't go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. But, his, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Now, some have tried to take these verses and say, well, Jesus was, he was deceiving. He was intentionally lying to them. I don't think that's right at all. That's not correct. What Jesus is doing here is he's waiting on God's timing. He's wanting to go under the the care of the Father. He's wanting to have complete submission to God's timing. His going up was not to be at the same time as his half-brothers. Instead, he was to go up alone. He was to go up when God directed him to go up and in the way that God directed him to go. Verse 8, when he says, my time is not yet fully come, Leon Morris in his commentary says this, he, he went up privately, not as a pilgrim, but as a messenger, as a messenger of God. He went up not to keep the feast, but to deliver the message that God had for him to deliver. The feast was the occasion for the message, not the reason for his journey. You see, in everything Christ was doing, he was... He really was about submitting himself to the Father's will, wanting to learn how to follow God, wanting to learn, uh, or wanting to learn, wanting to display a submission to the Father in everything he did. His brothers of the world didn't do this, they didn't submit their lives to the Father. The distinction between Jesus and his half-brothers carries over into the lives of all who follow Christ today as true disciples. Jesus himself being sent by God the Father on a mission of reconciliation and redemption of the world. He operated and oriented every action according to God's providential plan. The brothers, their time was always present. They operated according to their own timing living by that which seemed good to them. Similarly, this distinction exists for disciples today, for for you and I, those who are true disciples of Christ. For those of the world don't know God relationally in submitting their lives to Him, as Romans, Paul says in Romans 1, 22-32. But true disciples, true disciples... On the other hand, they know God and as such want to live in fellowship with God. Our daily lives should be lived out according to his directing and and his providential plan. As we close this morning, I want to share two ways, two ways that I think this happens for Christ's disciples. Two ways that I think we as disciples can ensure that we are walking according to God's providential plan and His timing. And and like Christ, we can wait upon God's timing to know when it's the right time to move, when it's the right time to step out in faith, when it's the right time to speak up or to not speak, when it's the right time to change occupations, when it's the right time to, um, to homeschool our children, to make these big decisions in life when it's the right time to send them to public school, whatever these decisions are in the everyday struggle that we as believers have, we know that if we're trusting in God and depending upon Him, learning from Him, walking with Him, we can hear, we can follow His lead. And so there's two things. The first one is obedience to the Word. 
obedience to the word. And you can write down these scripture references. John 14, 15. I'll share some verses and I'll just give you the references. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments, right? Obedience to his word. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 7, John 17, 14, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 20 is another verse. John 17, 21 that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. All this revolves around walking in obedience and submitting to God's word, right? Living out God's word. The second point is that as believers in Christ, not only are we to obey his word, we must be empowered by his spirit. And again, stay in the Gospel of John just to give us a few verses. John fourteen seventeen. Jesus tells his disciples, That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The role of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 15, 26, John 15, 27, John 16, 13, the last one. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Listen, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. It requires spiritual discernment to know God's timing and to walk in his will. Jesus models this spiritual discernment as he waits to hear from the Father when it is, when's the right time for him to go up to the feast. And I want to challenge us this morning, all of us, in this very similar way, that it requires spiritual discernment for us to know God's timing and to walk in his will And if we are going to have spiritual discernment in our life, it's going to require obedience to the word and then the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, as we, we submit ourselves to God and are led by His Spirit, It is God's prompting and God's leading that will teach us how to walk in step with him. As a true disciple of Christ, will you walk by faith and trust in God's providence? As a true disciple of Christ, will you you seek to follow him in all things? Will you engage and walk with Christ as his ambassador, exercising spiritual discernment in life? I ask you this morning, are you walking in obedience to his word, 
being empowered by His Spirit. This is the only way that we will live in fellowship with Him and truly experience the joy of daily living in Christ. As we consider these things this morning, we see Christ's model laid out before us and how He waited on the Father. I want to challenge us. Are, are, we, are we waiting in the same manner as we engage in the mission that God has given us? Are we waiting on the Lord and depending on the Lord in the same manner that Christ shows us here as he does? It requires spiritual discernment to know God's timing and to walk in his will. Are we a people of spiritual discernment? I pray that we are. I pray that it's something we desire to grow in. I want to invite you this morning as you reflect upon this message and consider this in your own life, maybe... Maybe there are even some disciplines that you know that need to be put in place in your life to help you grow in spiritual discernment. Maybe there's a specific area of your life that you need to surrender to the Lord. Or maybe you need to just simply rejoice because you've experienced God's perfect leading and you are walking in great fellowship with Him. And so for that, I would say praise God and invite you to worship Him and to continue to worship Him this morning. I'm going to close in prayer, and I want to invite you to respond to the Lord this morning as He leads. Let us pray. Father, as we come to You this morning, we are so thankful for Your providential care in our lives. We are so thankful, God, that Your hand is always here to guide us, and that by Your Holy Spirit, You work, you work within our hearts and our lives and our minds to lead us, and You take Your Word and you use it in our lives to sharpen us and to discern those things which are deep and to teach us how to live for you and for your glory. And so I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that as we see your example, we live for you, we live for your glory. Help us, Lord, to, um, to wait. Help us to wait on your timing, to learn patience, and to trust in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?